Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to compare the macro and asset allocation views of the UBS Chief Investment Office with those of our third-party asset manager partners. For today's conversation, I am joined by Jason Trejo, the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. We're excited to welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned, Richard Bernstein, the founder, chief executive officer, and chief investment officer of Richard Bernstein Advisors, or RBA. So with that, Jason, Rich, it's great to be back with you both. Thank you for spending some time today with our listeners, our clients. A very much looking forward to hearing your current thinking. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Rich, for joining us today. A lot to discuss. Absolutely. So to set the stage a bit, Rich, I recall you had joined us. This is going back to January to kick off the year 2023. Here we are today speaking in mid-August. So, of course, a lot has taken shape over the past eight months. So perhaps we can begin our conversation by discussing the big picture, uh, that being the U.S. economy. So, Rich, what are your thoughts on the resiliency demonstrated throughout 2023 of the U.S. economy and perhaps the prospects at this point for a soft landing versus a recession, that debate? Yeah, so so Dan, um, you know, I think it was about a year ago, 90% of economists were forecasting that either the U.S. economy was in recession or one was imminent. And, you know, if you kind of live by the view that the consensus is typically wrong, that, that was kind of the first hint that maybe the economy wasn't going to die the way everybody thought it was. And and today that's down to about 40 or 45% and, and shrinking, as, as most people could probably uh, figure out. I think the the issue right now among most observers of the U.S. economy is they're still using the word landing. You know, it's going to be a hard landing or a soft landing, um, meaning, you know, is it going to be a recession, the hard landing, or is it going to be just a, a, a nice slowdown, which is the soft landing? And, and of course, Wall Street always loves a soft landing because that's, that's great for financial assets. But, but realistically, it now looks and I know this may be heresy in many, many quarters, but, but it now looks like the economy is actually reaccelerating. Uh, GDP now, the Atlanta Fed's sort of real-time forecast of the economy, which is rarely correct to the decimal point, but usually catches the, the trends pretty well, that, that just rose up to 5%. So, you know, what landing? It's like where the economy is actually accelerating. We should be talking about a takeoff here. And I think that's, that's a little bit of a fake-out uh, for, for many investors as to where we were in the beginning of the year. I would probably put myself in that camp, too. I mean, I don't think we were predicting recession, but I think we thought that things would slow probably more than they, they actually did. So, Jason, to get your thoughts on what the data has been telling us recently, how would you characterize the condition of the economy and how might it evolve over the next few months? Well, first I'll say, as, as Richard's giving his answer, I was looking on the TV screen and you know, CNBC and the cry on it says the no landing scenario. So clearly this is the discussion <laughs> and topic um, uh, uh, that we're focused on here. It is like a lot of people, you know, I think our expectations for the year was, you know, things will slow down uh, and it, it hasn't gone that way. There's been no real moderation. I think the, the third quarter GDP number, the tracking estimate that, you know, that Richard Lutz from the Atlanta Fed, 5% early in the quarter, these are volatile, you know, it will probably come down. 
But even if it's still around the 2% range, it implies that the U.S. economy is growing at a trend, uh, which has been in the first half of this year, with not a lot of evidence based on the retail sales data that we've gotten uh, of late that uh, it's really sort of impacting the economy. It's, you know, there's been a lot of talk just in the past two weeks about a potential for reacceleration, you know, for growth, but I think even more so for inflation, that if the economy doesn't slow, will inflation pressures kind of, you know, pick up again? You know, there's, that's certainly a possibility. I, I do maybe attribute some of this discussion to like mid-August, uh, you know, looking for, for sort of stories to tell and kind of taking different data points and sort of drawing conclusions. If we look at the overall trajectory of the economy, though, you know, from the labor markets, you know, probably the prime example, the thing that has maybe been surprising is just how gradual the, the, the moderation of the labor market is still very tight. But there's a clear trend over the past year and a half of just a payroll growth on a monthly basis. The trend is clearly lower. Same thing with, with job openings. Wage growth has come down. Things like, you know, the average, you know, work week, the number of hours has been ticking lower. Part-time work has been coming down. You know, what it tells us is that the labor market is cooling at a very kind of, you know, gradual pace. The consumer, you know, had come into this whole potential recession risk, you know, in good shape. Like the balance sheets were, were in good shape. So if you have a labor market that is still holding up quite well, a consumer is in pretty good shape, uh, it doesn't argue for the economy to be in this recession you know, in, in the near term. But at some point, you know, the Fed having rates at, these, at the levels they are, there are signs of it starting to kind of at the margin bite. Again, to me, that's more of a sign that the, the economy should slow. I, mean, I think the it would go against really every economic kind of, you know, kind of analysis to suggest we're going to get a reacceleration when the economy and monetary policy is now kind of kind of restrictive territory. But the level of like the decline, you know, certainly has been very modest. I think that's to me that that gives me comfort that at least for the rest of this year, maybe the next six months, you know, recession really, you know, is uh, is unlikely. So whether we continue in this sort of no lending you know, scenario, continue to trend towards soft funding, I think that that'll be more of the debate. Now, the 2024 story, I think that's a different matter. Uh, as you look 12 months out, you know, I think it, there's there's more ranges of outcomes. But for the time being, just given what we're seeing in the data and given sort of the underlying fundamentals, we're still flying at pretty high altitudes um, you know, with an occasional head of turbulence. But I think it's still a pretty good story for the time being. So maybe let's spend a few moments talking about inflation specifically, which has shown signs of improvement, some components coming down more gradual granted than others. Rich, how do you see the inflation picture evolving through year end? So, Dan, I think, you know, we we have to realize that um, the pandemic really skewed uh, normal cyclical analysis, right? We had an amazing uh, downturn in the economy an amazing upturn in the economy, and and now we're getting all the ripple effects of, of that going on, and and so I think one has to be a little careful in in thinking of the economy in terms of normal cyclical circumstances, and you know the length of trends that we're seeing. I kind of liken it to you know a, a ball bouncing, and you drop it, and it, the first bounce is is big, and then the second one smaller, and they get smaller and smaller and more rapid. Uh, uh, cycles in in that bouncing ball, and I think that's kind of what we're seeing in the economy. And I think if, if you step back from the short term, in terms of of what's going on in, in in the economy and what's going on in inflation, and you look at it a little longer term, uh, I think that the uh, there's still an upward trend to inflation. I realize that may not happen in the next several months, but I think there's still an upward trend in inflation. And the reason I say that is that um, 
you know, the reality is that globalization is contracting. And globalization, I would argue, and I think my colleagues at RBA would argue, was the number one reason that you had secular disinflation. That what globalization did was it constantly opened markets, and you just had a, uh, more and more and more competition, sort of the opposite extreme of, of a monopoly, where a monopoly gives you uh, one, one usually inferior good at a very high price. What globalization did by increasing competition was it got you more and more competition. You got better and better goods at cheaper and cheaper prices, and therefore you had secular disinflation. Well, if globalization is contracting, uh, it would argue that that period of secular disinflation may be ending, right? I'm not saying ended, but we're in the process of ending it. And so I think one, investors have to be a little careful not to get too caught up in the month-to-month inflation numbers and understand that as long as the, the world is, the, the globalization is contracting and, and, you know, events around the world are, are less conducive to doing business, that the odds are that with the United States having the mass, a massive trade deficit and contracted globalization, that we're, we're heading for a period of secular inflation. Now, what does that mean, right? We're in a hair-on-fire environment where everything is, like, unprecedented, blah, blah, blah. No, that's not what... I mean, look, long-term inflation in the United States is roughly about 2.5% a year. I think our feeling is it'll be something like 3, which is not a hair-on-fire forecast, but compounded out over 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years is a meaningful change to the global economy, a meaningful change to the U.S. economy, and a meaningful change to uh, to the financial markets. So I, I think we just want to differentiate a tiny bit here between the month-to-month inflation numbers and this backdrop, which is changing. And uh, unless we're all going to start singing Kumbaya, uh, we don't think it's going to going to change meaningfully, and we're we're pretty much ending the period of secular disinflation. So, Richard, I want to kind of follow up on this inflation sort of dynamic, because would you describe to me that's a secular story, which could take you know you know multiple years, it sort of kind of plays out that dynamic. The discussion in the marketplace just in the past couple weeks about this sort of reacceleration, that seems to be much more focused on sort of this cyclical idea that we're getting disinflation. Some of it is like year-over-year base effects, things of that sort. And once that kind of washes through, then the concern is if the economy doesn't slow down more, then you'll get, I think, cyclical inflation pressures. But at least that's the way I interpret it. Are you thinking of it in that way? Is there a way in which you think, yeah. well, you know, like, yes, yes it could pick up? I, yeah, I, I, I did focus on the secular, and I, I forgot to answer the question with respect to the cyclical. But I think you're right. I, I tend to think of it, Jason, as, as more nominal growth, right? Real growth plus pricing um, is really what matters. And, um, you know, if, if let's just for a second, let's just, you know, humor the Atlanta Fed for a second and say that, you know, if, if the economy really is growing at 5% and inflation's at 2 to 3% or 3 to 4%, you know, you're talking about seven to nine percent nominal growth. Um, it's hard to imagine that the Fed would start reversing course, and it, you know, we, it's party on Garth with seven to nine percent nominal GDP growth. So I think that the question right now is, you know, not only is it inflation, but what's what's total nominal growth, and I'm not sure that's going to slow the way people are sort of anticipating. So. Jason, I'll readily admit, I'm not sure I'm smart enough to say whether it's going to be inflation or real growth, but I think the nominal economy is going to be stubbornly strong. Rich, you just made a Wayne's World reference to our younger listeners there who may have missed that. <laughs> 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 exactly. uh, I, yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think from a structural perspective, the and I've already seen like you just going to pull up a chart, like what is nominal GDP growth measured on a sort of quarterly basis annualized for the past few years and compare it to 
the decade prior to the pandemic, but even go back, you know, let's say 1990, and it's a clear step change higher. And some of that will will moderate a little bit, but there is an element of, I think, of structural change. Where I maybe disagree a little bit with the inflation story, and the, the amount of maybe weight you're putting on sort of globalization. You know, I think it that was, you know, there was a factor, but for U.S. economy, where 10, 11 percent of our economy is net exports trade. 70 plus percent of consumption of services, disinflation by you know bringing in you know, cheap goods from China that certainly helps, but this relative to what we ever would have had prior to the you know say the pandemic, you know had that not happened maybe inflation would have been a couple tenths of percent higher. Like you know these are really difficult things to estimate. So below or near two percent is slightly higher. The, the to me like the bigger difference and this actually gets into the you know your point about the nominal uh, you know kind of growth is that. Demand for a number of years was quite low, and there's sort of excess supply. Uh, whereas now there doesn't seem to be a shortage of demand. A lot of that was fueled by incredible policy stimulus, and now that's sort of continued to play out. It's been more of a, you know, kind of a lot of this is more of a supply size story going forward. So when you think of this kind of higher nominal GDP, there is obviously has to be an element of inflation, there has to be an element of real growth, but there's also an element of kind of demand and supply. I mean, do you think of it sort of like, you know, do you break it maybe down in that way? And if you do, how would you think of like, yeah, we're just going to have really strong demand because households are good, but also fiscal policy is going to be just really much more accommodative. Like, what are the drivers to get to that higher sustained nominal GDP? Right. So, so I think um, the way we look at it, it Jason, is that the the major issue right now for the United States is the combination of our massive trade deficit plus contracting globalization. That we view that as being somewhat of a toxic is probably too strong, but but probably not not a great combination. And and um, I, you know the trade deficit. People have whined about the trade deficit for many 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 years, and it really didn't make any difference, right? And the reason it didn't make any difference was globalization was expanding. But I think when you're dependent on the rest of the world for you know, you, you mentioned the U.S. economy is very service-oriented, but when you're dependent on the rest of the world for goods and the global economy is contracting, uh, or not, uh, globalization, rather, is contracting, not the global economy. Globalization is contracting. That, that seems to be a major supply shock that starts hitting the U.S. economy, right? Now, it's not going to happen in a day. It's not going to be like the pandemic where all of a sudden we had supply shocks. and you know. But, but I think that was a taste of what could happen secularly over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. That's, that's kind of where we are. So, you know, our investment themes, which I'm sure we'll get to later, longer term, are all about, you know, the rebuilding of the U.S. capital stock. Call that reshoring, call it whatever you want, um, you know, returning manufacturing to the United States. We think that's going to happen out of necessity, um, rather than, you know, necessarily by choice and, and um, maybe an element of national security in, involved in that as, as well. So I think, you know, I, it, supply and demand. Look, I think demand can stay – we could just hold it flat, right? We could say that whatever rate of demand growth you want to assume, assume that, that rate of demand growth. But we do think that through time, you think of, a, think of like a long ex- – Ended watching paint dry supply shock, 
that's kind of the way I, I would think about it, right? The, the, we saw a quick one, but that was obviously extreme and very dramatic, and that's not what we're talking about. But think about that slowly drawn out over 5 or 10 or 15 years, then I think you have what we're talking about. Rich, the economic factors we've touched on, how do you feel those are informing the Fed's thinking when it comes to monetary policy? There's a lot of anticipation over what the Fed might do at the upcoming September policy meeting. This is coming off of the July rate hike, though. How do you feel the Fed is interpreting the current economic environment and what might the course be for monetary policy through year end? So, Dan, I think my, my personal view is that the Fed is a little bit caught between a rock and a hard place right now. That, that um, you know, financial conditions, uh, according to the Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index, have kind of eased uh, over the last several months. I'm sure they're not happy about that. Um, you know, they, they are probably encouraged by the fact that inflation is coming down, as, as Jason was just talking about. But I also think that they see the, the tremendous fiscal stimulus that we had and um, that the, uh, there's some odd things going on in the economy that, that are actually stimulating the economy, right? And, and so I think they're kind of caught. I don't, I, I'm not, you know, look, I, I, I'm stuttering. I'm sorry. I think the way I'm, what I'm trying to say is I don't think there is an economic model out there right now that can deal with the current economy. I think that's why so many people were forecasting recession and got it wrong, is that we're in an environment where a lot of things are changing. So let me give you an example. Okay, We know that, that higher interest rates historically stymie housing. Well, oddly enough, higher interest rates are stimulating housing right now, which is bizarre. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And the reason that's happening is because you don't have an inventory of existing homes that people want to turn over because people are in their homes, mortgage rates have gone up, and they can't flip their homes anymore, not flip necessarily in terms of trading, but they can't move up or down, you know, whatever. They can't improve uh, the type of house they want because they can't afford to do it anymore because they have a cheaper mortgage and they can't move up. And so the, the supply of existing homes, the inventory, if you will, has, has been unusually small. So what's happening is that with the normal demographics, the housing has been stimulated. I'm sure everybody's seen the housing stocks over the last year or so and what they've done. You know, that's in nobody's economic model. That is not supposed to happen. So I think the Fed is is kind of flying a little bit blind. I think they are scared to make a move one direction or the other. And, you know, personally, just a personal comment here for a second, I don't think that's what you pay central bankers for, is to be scared and, and not make a decision. I think they have to make a decision and live with it. Um, but, of course, the politics surrounding that can often, often be uh, – rather brutal, as history would suggest. So so I, I think the Fed's caught between a rock and a hard place right now. Uh, Jason, just to get your thoughts, we've spoken about this a lot recently, but what are your thoughts on the road ahead for monetary policy? Well, first, I couldn't agree more with Richard's comment about you know, the nature of economic activity, like, you know, that what's going on is you know, very different than, than things that have happened before. And so one of the reasons why I think a lot of economists and investors have been caught offside for the past, you know, certainly this year on expecting a recession when it hasn't materialized is it's, they did so, you know, kind of calibrating their models on the past 40 years of data where there's certain economic kind of behaviors and patterns that clearly got kind of completely disrupted by the pandemic and plus other sort of unique factors. 
so if you, I think that's kind of helpful context and thinking about, you know, what does the Fed do? Because I think they've also been caught offside initially. Now the inflation story has certainly moved in a way that is they would like, and the fact that the, the economy has held up, you know, they've they've been given a, a maybe initially, you know, a hand that they kind of played poorly, and now they got some cards that kind of put them in a better position. The challenge is kind of what do they do from here? Given that sort of uncertainty uh, and whether they should be making a decision or not, I think the bias is towards perhaps then let's say, what kind of error do we want to make or what kind of error do we want to avoid? I think they, given what they would sort of look at the inflation data trending lower may not go to 2%, given some of the, the secular forces that we discussed earlier. But if it gets to 3%, that's still a pretty good situation where we don't need to do more to try and squeeze that last 1% out. The economic cost in terms of higher unemployment isn't worth the economic benefit. So to me, that would argue for them, you know, biasing towards you know, not being done at you know, the bar to do another hike is maybe relatively high. Um, it could be you know, achieved if, if the economic data stays where it is. And then they just try to wait it out, uh, and they see how the data evolves. And, they, and when they say they're data dependent, I think that becomes very much the case. It also means, I think this is already kind of one of the reasons why they went to average inflation targeting back in 2020. Uh, they were projecting inflation to go up in the, the 2010s. It didn't. They were hiking based on the situation. Uh, they kind of got it wrong then. You know, they got it wrong the past few years. So I think that augurs for them saying, like, our ability to forecast inflation is is quite poor. So now they're very much kind of backwards looking, again, whether that's the right approach or not. I think that's, that's kind of the institutional bias would be going in, in that direction, which, again, means maybe do less now and just see how things evolve and then become somewhat reactionary as we move forward the next, you know, six to 12 months. I think what's the, probably the more interesting question for the markets, and this is definitely being discussed, is, well, you know, when do they cut, but also how much do they cut to? And if we are in a world of higher normal than GDP, then instead of cutting back to 2%, 2.5%, you know, maybe they only cut, you know, 200 basis points from like 55 to 35 uh, and interest rates like a 10-year yield around 4%. Yeah, maybe it pulls back if there's growth concerns as growth slows, but that's kind of the new reality that uh, that we haven't fully embraced. So it's, I think not only what does the Fed do, but like ultimately thinking along the lines of you know two three years down the line, where does this all kind of settle out when the dust clears? And I think that's that's what the market's also kind of grappling with. And, and part of the move we've seen higher in rates is a little bit of like, huh, maybe you know if there's no landing, then you know rates don't actually kind of go lower. And I think that still hasn't been fully. Investors that are maybe positioned for it, how they think about the markets going forward. So that aspect of like ultimately where does the Fed settle is equally important for investment decisions as what does the Fed do in terms of potential hikes or cuts in the next you know, six to 12 months. So just to touch on markets for a few moments, recent performance, rich in equities, we've witnessed a bit of a run-up throughout the months of June, July. Here in August, we've been seeing a bit of a pullback, but uh, the run-up, granted, it's largely been a product of select stocks, a small concentration. What are your thoughts on current valuations, and might there be further room to run? So, uh, Dan, you know, I think we one has to be very careful about talking about the market, right? And and I'm sure all the listeners who, who are familiar with RBA probably know what I'm about to say, that we, for the past several years, we viewed the stock market overall as a seesaw. And on one side of the seesaw, you've got tech, innovation, disruption. I would put cryptocurrencies, obviously, not equities. But the sexy stuff all on one side of the seesaw. And on the other side of the seesaw, you have virtually everything else in the world. And, you know, that's kind of the way the market has behaved over the last three years, right? 2021, uh, tech, innovation, disruption, cryptocurrencies are, are you know, the, the everybody's favorite. 
2022, uh, the seesaw goes in the other direction. And I said everything else in the world, uh, people should remember in 2022, 70% of non-U.S. markets outperformed the United States, even in dollar terms. And in 2023, obviously, we've gone back in the other direction. And what's interesting is that, that the number of stocks on the rising side of the seesaw has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller, as you, as you point out. And, and so year to date, you know, we've got one of the narrowest markets, uh, probably in history. Um, and, and all these weird things are going on where the, you know, the, the Russell 1000 growth index, the, the index that most growth managers use as their benchmarks, uh, doesn't even qualify as a diversified portfolio under the 40 Act anymore. I mean, there's all kinds of weird things going on. So keeping this, the seesaw analogy in mind, when you talk about valuation, I think you have to talk about one side of the seesaw and the other side of the seesaw. And the one side of the seesaw that's very sexy, I think, is, is you know, I, I, I'll just let it go. I think it's ridiculously priced. I think, it's, I think there's extraordinarily unrealistic expectations. I think people aren't even looking at reality with respect to those 7 or 10 or 20 names. I mean, the one I throw out all the time, not endorsing these stocks by any means, please don't misunderstand, uh, the people listening should misunderstand. I'm not endorsing anything. But Caterpillar Tractor's earnings growth has been stronger than Microsoft's earnings growth in nine of the last ten quarters, right? I mean, Microsoft isn't even like a growth stock, but everybody's sure it's a growth stock, and that's fantastic, and nobody cares that there's other things growing. So when you're in an environment like that, you should always kind of consider that the one side of the seesaw is pretty expensive. The other side of the seesaw, though, Dan, I would argue – is very, very cheap, and the catalysts are growing, right? You don't just want to buy cheap assets. You want to buy cheap assets with a catalyst. And I would would argue the other side of the seesaw is very attractively valued, and the catalysts or the list of catalysts is starting to get longer. So, you know, our portfolios are positioned squarely on the other side of the seesaw. And and so we think that's where the valuations are, are more than attractive. Rich, I want to ask you a follow-up question on that kind of that's this framework. So part of the seesaw, the different kind of extremes, like there's assets that are really expensive and maybe hard to justify the valuations, others that are a lot more assets that are, are reasonably valued, cheaply valued, interesting. The challenge I think is that as investors, especially if you you know you can't or maybe you know if you're like a kind of a growth fund manager or your your benchmark to the S and P of hundred, you kinda of have to have some of the exposure of the more expensive stuff. The slipping of the seesaw between like what becomes higher and lower, like you know, twenty one, it was you know, it was the definitely the more speculative stuff. In part, of that could have been fueled by incredibly low interest rates, making it just you know free money to do these kind of things. Then we got a dose of economic reality last year that brought it back to earth. This year, now it's the AI story. The challenge, if it's more economic fundamentals, and this kind of goes back to the, even the conversation about the just the frameworks and how to think about the economic cycle. That seems more logical of how you can look at these things that are interesting opportunities, but when it becomes either speculation or hype-driven or a technological disruption that's hard to kind of quantify, even if we know it's it's real, but like, how do you think about the earnings impact? Which means the markets, this kind of goes back to like the markets can stay irrational longer than people can stay liquid. How do you try and, or how do you even think about that other part of the seesaw that you don't like? Say like, well, we tilt away from it, but we have to acknowledge it's there. We have to acknowledge it's going to be driving the markets. Do you just choose to you know, discount entirely. How, like, how do you think about that when it doesn't necessarily conform to more conventional market cycle economic analysis? Right, right. So that's a that's a great question. I mean, what we have done at RBA, for better or for worse, and I will 
actually say it that way, is that we have pretty much stayed away from the Magnificent Seven, right? And even our technology exposure that we have in our portfolios is very much equal-weighted technology exposure. So even within our tech exposure, we haven't emphasized the Magnificent Seven. The result has been, of course, that we are lagging pretty dramatically this year, right? When you consider the Magnificent Seven made up between 70 and 75% of S&P 500 performance in the first half of the year, if we're totally de-emphasizing those seven or ten names, uh, you're going to lag, and of, and of course we are. And that's the, that's the price that we are willing to take because we really think that both the short-term and the long-term opportunities are on the other side of that seesaw. We, I, I disagree, Jason, not with you, but just in general, with the notion that somehow the Magnificent Seven is fundamentally based. The last spurt in the Magnificent Seven coincides to almost to the day of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and the FDIC taking them over and the Fed providing liquidity to the banking system. Right, So I think this is not a fundamentally driven story. I think it is a speculative story based on liquidity. And every time we get a hint of liquidity, you find that the, the speculative story comes raging back. Um, again, I can't emphasize enough that, that a lot of these companies are not growing, but yet there's so much hype around them and everything else. The other thing I would say, Jason, and, and this will make a lot of people very unhappy that I'm going to say this, and I apologize ahead of time, I am a skeptic of the investment story for AI. I'm not a skeptic of the economic story. There is no doubt in my mind that AI will change the economy. But let's go back in time, right? 20 years ago, the Internet meaningfully changed the economy. When I graduated college 20 years before that, computers meaningfully changed the economy. There's always going to be a technological innovation that changes the economy. However, we have to separate out the story from the investment opportunity. And the one I always like to talk about is with the Internet, if you had bought NASDAQ a year before the Internet bubble peaked, so we're talking about buying it about March of 1999. It didn't peak until March of 2000, so a full year before the peak. It would have taken you 11 years to break even. But yet the Internet in that 11-year period became a major part of the economy, and change the way a lot of people do business. But yet the investment opportunity was much worse than people thought. And I think with the hype of what's going on with AI, I think one should have a very jaundiced eye about the investment opportunity, but be very open to the economic opportunity. I mean, our business, you know, like the people, people always ask me, are you going to use AI? My answer is when we see something that helps us, of course we're going to use AI. Right? I mean, we're not still using abacuses. We use, you know, we use computers. We use the internet. We use everything. Of course, we're going to use AI. But you know, is it is it this earth-shaking development that is going to change the way things are done so much that the investment opportunity isn't fully discounted in these stocks? I'm not so sure about that one. Even if you, even if the stock valuations went extreme, and you tried to be very objective assessing what is the opportunity there's even a basic kind of question from uh, an investing perspective of there'll be a lot of economic benefits will this actually translate into better earnings for these companies because it could be very productivity enhancing and that could be fantastically disinflationary and the companies don't benefit broader society benefits 
because to really believe the the the, the valuation story, you have to believe like it's going to be huge economic benefit, and all the economic rent is going to be captured by these companies. And exactly, we've seen you know the monopolization to some extent of like these big companies. You, I mean, there's a plausible argument like you know the the, the bigger are going to just get bigger, ignoring antitrust issues and things of that sort. But that like, that's that alone is a hard question to sort of answer. Like who's really going to Get the economic benefits. Is it going to be broader society? Is it going to be, you know, a handful of you know, large publicly listed companies? That is still in itself to be determined. Right, and I think you know the the investors always have to remember that you know in every industry something moves from innovative technology to commodity. In the technology sector, that movement from innovation innovative technology to commodity moves extraordinarily rapidly. Right, the competition is huge. And I think unless, again, you, you brought up the issue of antitrust and monopolistic situations, um, I, I don't want to pass judgment on the companies, but I think it's no accident that some of these companies are being questioned for, the, for monopolistic antitrust tendencies because they're trying to thwart that, that uh, rapid movement from innovation to commodity. And I think, you know, it's an interesting question. It's kind of an academic question. So before we close out in the few moments we have remaining, do want to get your thoughts on positioning, investment themes that excite you the most at the moment. What we can do, Jason, we'll provide our guest, Rich Bernstein, with the final word. So I'll go to you first, Jason. Thoughts on positioning, what excites you the most at the moment? Well, ultimately, I think some of our key recommendations are, are pretty consistent with what kind of what Rich is saying. Uh, you know, one of our key messages in equities, like, you know, it's been for a couple of months, we've got to look for the laggards uh, within the equity market. You know, there were seven stocks that drove the entire market, uh, the S&P, from you know, Jan 1 until the end of May. It's broadened out a little bit, but it still hasn't necessarily, you know, a situation where they've kind of caught up or those seven stocks have come down. And for a variety of reasons, whether it is the longer-term secular story, whether it is a little bit more of a improving outlook on the cyclical front, there's opportunities in the rest of the market away from those companies that I think we offer that we think offer kind of the better opportunities, like kind of those laggards that that we think are, are interesting in the US and abroad. The other kind of just key thing and it kind of talks about the you know the the, the macro that we discussed earlier of, of where rates are, where inflation is going to be. You know, even if you get a more optimistic view of uh, uh, of how things could play out a 10-year yield at, you know, 4.1%, 4.2%, and then you add in spread for, for things for high-quality investment-grade corporate bonds, mortgage-backed securities. These are some pretty attractive yields that investors haven't seen in a while. You know, the risk at this point is to me is more that the yields, not even the risk, but the yields are going to hold steady or go down as opposed to going a whole lot higher. I kind of question just how high rates can go before it causes pain. Even if they do, you're getting kind of compensated for, for some of that risk in, in now. So kind of high-quality bonds, kind of barbelling your portfolio away from just sitting in cash, but thinking like there's there's opportunities there. I think it kind of pairs well with you know, some of these equity opportunities that if we're wrong on this kind of recovery, then it will give you that some some protection. So that diversification that did not work at all last year, I think that this is something that you still have to think about going forward as well. Thank you, Jason. And then, Rich, the final word to you on positioning. Any takeaways you would like to leave us with? Sure. I love that Jason used the word diversification because in RBA, that's what we've always tried to be. We've always tried to be the diversifier. But 10 years ago or 12 years ago or 13 years ago or 14 years ago now when we started RBA, um, we were the bullish diversifier. Everybody was under their desk in the fetal position. 
And we were the bullish diversifier in a portfolio. We actually thought we were entering one of the biggest bull markets of our careers. Well, now I saw a chart this week um, that pointed out that individual investor um, portfolios equity beta, where if you go back to 2008, 2009, 2010, 11, it was ridiculously low. Today, it's about the highest it has ever been. So what's RBA's positioning? We're the calming diversifier in the portfolio. Right. And, and I think I used that, that analogy of the seesaw. I truly believe you said, what gets you excited? My answer is that other side of the seesaw, the investment menu of opportunities is so huge right now, but nobody wants to hear about it. And, and nobody cares. And I just think that there is literally a world of opportunity out there, both in the United States and outside the United States that people don't care about. And so I think in an environment where individual investor, individual investor beta is close to an all-time high, you know, having a calming diversifier, an opportunistic diversifier in a portfolio, I think is really critical right now because people are taking huge amounts of risk and they have no perception of the amount of that risk. And, and so I think I love Jason's word about diversification I always think diversification is important, but I think when you've got a narrow market, highest, relatively the highest beta in individual investor portfolios in the last 15 or 20 years, I think diversification is super important. Well, Rich, Jason, very productive conversation as always. Thank you both for dropping by. How should I be positioned to share with our listeners, our clients, your current thinking? A lot will take shape over the next few months, so it would be great, Rich, to have you join Jason and I again sometime in the new year to catch up on what transpires and see where we are at that point. Though, so thank you both again for your time today. Appreciate it as always. Great. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks, Rich, for joining us for the great conversation. Absolutely, Jason. Thank you. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.